0: Do you feel safe with them? Can you actually emotionally connect with them? Are you showing up for each other at a level of attunement? You know, that really matters. So yeah, really wanting our secure attachment and bonding with partners to come from that sense of availability, attunement, you know, responsiveness at that emotional level. This is Awakened Love, the podcast,
1: and I'm your host, Angel. This is a space where we get real, real about sex, love, and awakening. So strap in, let's go deep. What's up, beautiful awakened humans, and welcome to another episode of Awakened Love. Today, I am joined by Jessica Fern. Jessica is a psychotherapist, a coach, Certified Clinical Trauma Professional, and the author of Polysecure, Attachment Trauma and Non-Monogamy, and the Polysecure Workbook, Healing Your Attachment and Creating Security in Loving Relationships. This book was an absolute game changer for me. I've been recommending it left and right, so I'm extremely excited to have her here with us today and can't wait for you guys to learn from her wisdom. Welcome, welcome. I'm so excited to have you here, and thank you for joining us, Jessica. Yes. Thank you, Angel. Yeah. I was just saying before we hit record that your book Polysecure has been profoundly impactful in my household and also being circulated amongst (laughs) a lot of people. So I'm just really grateful for that.
0: Yeah, Yeah, me too. Yeah.
1: (laughs) so i'd love to dive right in and and start simple because we're definitely going to get to more complex um stuff yeah for everybody listening could you just give us a brief overview what is consensual non-monogamy
0: yes so it's an umbrella term that means not cheating basically that means you know the many different styles of ways that people can have more than one lover and that can be sexually emotionally or the combination of those two and everyone involved is consenting to it and knows that there's multiple people involved.
1: Yes. Yeah. So can you give a very whistle-stop tour of the <clears throat> versions of that or some of the versions of that? Of course, there's like infinite creative ways we can love. Things, exactly. Yeah. Some of the the more common ways.
0: Yeah. So most of us are familiar with monogamy, which is usually I'm emotionally and sexually exclusive to one person. Right, and then a little over to that can be something called monogamish, where it's like, oh, occasionally on a business trip there might be a hookup, or maybe we have we have someone come into the bedroom with us, you know. Um, and then there's sort of open relationships, which usually um, are similar to that. You know, there's more of a sexual exploration. Um, swinging too is sort of doing sex with other couples or other partners. Um, But really maintaining that sort of primary emotional, primary relationship. Mm -hmm. And then on the other end, there's what, you know, polyamory, um, which is multiple loves, right? Multiple partners. And of course, there's many different ways to do that. There's, you know, more hierarchical polyamory, there's non hierarchical polyamory, there's solo polyamory. (laughs) Yeah. And then kind of even further is relationship anarchy, where people are not really ranking relationships based on their romantic or sexual importance that any relationship can, you know, really be central into our life and really might ebb and flow. Mm. Amazing, it's, sorry, go for it. No, go
1: ahead. I was just gonna say, it's beautiful to think there are so many creative options on the menu that perhaps in a pretty monogamous focused culture, we're not aware of and may not even know we relate to.
0: Yeah, exactly. And and one of the terms I love is polyintimates, which is we might have very deep, poly, you know, intimate relationships with other people that um the word friendship just doesn't capture for us, right? We're doing life with them, we're sharing life responsibilities, their companionship, you know, they're an attachment figure. And many monogamous people in my life, when I, you know, would talk about that term, they'd go, oh, yeah, like, that's what we are. That's what my cousin is. (laughs) Right. So so we realize we are often doing these multiple ways of, you know, connecting and loving and sharing life with humans. But we just don't have good language for it often.
1: Mm, Because I think the root of the word polyamorous is like to love many, many. Yeah, Yeah. and we all love many humans, right?
0: (laughs) Right, exactly. Yeah, Yeah, most of us are quite polyamorous when it comes to our children, right?
1: Right, hopefully, that's the point, right? Right, (laughs) (laughs) can Hopefully. So can you speak to a little, because you were speaking around consensual non-monogamy, the difference between Mm -hmm. that and cheating and that everyone is consenting, can you speak a little bit to the don't ask, don't tell paradigm? Because... There's, you know, it's, it is an agreement that they have, but they're kind of
0: bypassing consent. What do we do there? I know it's a tricky one. I've seen it work. I've seen it be a disaster. (laughs) I usually see it only work in a few situations, you know, um, I don't see it usually last long term. Um, but you know, it's basically right that people are consenting to you can go and have other experiences, um, but I'm not going to ask about it and please don't tell me about it. Yeah. And if that's an occasional thing, you know, um, sometimes that works. Um, but when you start to regularly date someone else and now you're living like two separate lives. <laughs> right? Then you go, oh, did that person consent to this, right? Did they consent to a regular relationship and falling in love and all of that, right? Or did they think this was something that happened, you know, three or four times a year? (laughs) Right. Right. So it,
1: yeah, go ahead. So it, oh, I was just going to say the thing that um, can get a little confusing, I think, is that those two partners have that agreement, but then the new, newer partner, let's say, or the person coming in or entering that relationship doesn't have any agreements with their metamor, which for those listening, metamore is a term that I learned from exactly. Jessica, which yeah. can you explain what a metamor is? It's basically your partner's partner. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. So you don't have an agreement with your metamor, that can feel a little
0: tricky, right? It's like you guys have a don't ask, don't tell, but what what's our, our agreement? Yeah, you know? exactly. Exactly. And strangely, the new person could know more about the original or pre-existing partner than that first partner does, right? Because you're like, oh, you can tell me about your life, that's fine. You know, so yeah, yeah. It, get, it usually gets sticky pretty quickly. Mm.
1: Can you also speak to the difference between seeking secure attachment which I think Mm -hmm. most of our listeners are familiar with attachment theory. We're not gonna get too deep, deep, deep into it in this episode. If you would like to understand more about that, you know, there's many, many places you can understand that, including Jessica's book, Polysecure, which by the way, has one of the best kind of synopsis or overviews of attachment that I've ever read. And I've read a lot of this stuff, Mm -hmm. so brava, incredible. And it's in the early chapters, so run, don't walk people, but can you speak to the difference between seeking (laughs) secure attachment to our partners via the structure of a relationship versus the quality of your connection?
0: Yeah. So the structure of our relationship is sort of just that, right? The structural elements of legal marriage, of living together, having children, having a house, sharing finances. Maybe we run a business, you know, we own things together right? And these all create, they can create a sense of security. You know, there's truth to that and there's nothing wrong with that per se. But what, I st- what I'm teasing apart here is please don't rely on those structural elements um, for your secure attachment at an emotional level right because many people might feel safe oh i know my partner's never going to leave because we've been married this many years and we have all these things you know but um do you feel safe with them can you actually emotionally connect with them are you showing up for each other at a level of attunement you know that really matters so yeah really wanting our secure attachment and bonding with partners to come from that sense of availability attunement you know responsiveness at that emotional level Mm, Yeah, Yeah. this
1: was a huge light bulb moment for me when I was reading your book, because Mm -hmm. my husband and I talk about this all the time, that if the quality of our connection is good, we can withstand anything. There's like we can really go through a lot and we can really negotiate through a lot and we we can really hold a lot of complexity. But if the quality of our connection is not feeling good, that's when everything goes sideways. And we had sensed that. And we'd kind of named it, but this made it extremely clear. And I think that that can be the mistake in um, consensual non-monogamous partnerships. If there is a primary that you kind of just lean on the primacy as like, oh, well, exactly, we own a home or you know we're married, like we're good. And it's actually not necessarily the case if the quality of that connection isn't secure. It makes it um, really, really challenging. Exactly we learned that the hard way. So (laughs) can you talk about exposing relational insecurities that may have been hidden by those relational structures when Mm -hmm. those structures change? So like relational security versus structural security.
0: Right. So often when people have been, you know, more monogamous and then they open up, They're changing that structure, right, from monogamy to polyamory. So a lot gets uncovered in that, right? And some people go, oh, wow, I didn't realize, um, you know, I've been relying more on the monogamous structure to feel safe and secure. And then a lot of relationship challenges sort of get exposed. Yeah. (sighs) And then I call it like, it's like double or triple duty is what happens. You're like, we're opening up. There's all these new things about me as an individual and my dating or my sexuality that I'm figuring out. We're trying to stabilize a whole new paradigm together as partners. Oh, and all this stuff from our past has to be addressed. You know?
1: Yep, and then throwing yeah. life in there, businesses, right, and, right, work, know, whatever else family, is happening. health, <laughs> right, all the things. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it can get complex. And um, yeah, I have a joke with one of my dear sisters that like it's definitely higher cost, but also higher reward. It's like if you want, it's true. Yeah, more complexity for sure. And it's definitely a challenge. But yeah, what I realized with my therapist is that what we can start to think through these challenges and also if you're looking from the outside in at friends, let's say opening up their relationship, you're like, ooh, that looks tricky or like it's gonna Mm -hmm. really rock you. But what often is happening as you just explained is that whatever was hidden in the merge in your like kind of enmeshment, it's not that those problems weren't already there internally, whether our childhood wounds or as a relationship Mm -hmm. and underlying dynamic, they are, they were just hidden. (laughs) And so I, and I wonder if, and I've thought about this in my own relationship, like, you know, when we have kids,
0: maybe that would have come up or some other kind of extreme pressure. So it's not just that. It's not just that. I definitely see that when there's transitions of children coming into the picture, moving from a job change or a career change or a parent moving into the household, like this can all start to expose, you know, some of the things that have been swept under the rug for a while. Mm. You know, in non-monogamy, though, it does seem to like really expose it because, you know, let's be honest, we start dating other people and there is a comparison. Mm. Right? You're going, oh, this person is giving me this new person is giving me this love language I've always wanted. <laughs> and I've been asking it for you for years, you know, and and even though people say don't compare your partners, um, it's something that the experience starts to get compared, you know, mm. and sometimes that's yeah. great because it raises the bar, you know, of going, oh, wow, we haven't been doing certain things for each other. And let's really focus on that.
1: Yes. Yeah. And I think I was having this discussion with some friends just the other night around how um, the point I think of this of this, these relational structures is to access different parts of ourselves through different people, like in in the same way that friends activate different parts of us. It's just like almost like a deeper, more intimate level of that. And yet when you see someone activating a different part of your partner, um, although very beautiful, it can be also challenging in that comparison can come up. What's your best tips for leaning into <clears throat> compersion? How do we develop more compersion? Which for those listening yeah. means joy or getting pleasure from our
0: partners, joy and pleasure, even if it doesn't include us. Would you say that's an apt yeah. description? Yes, that's great. Yes, it's sort of the sympathetic joy concept, right? But specifically around happiness when your partner is with someone else and they're ex- you know having pleasure and joy. Um, I think compersion is a funny thing too because often it gets forced onto people like you're bad at poly if you're not feeling enough compersion Mm. you know and so I just want to be careful about people weaponizing compersion you know and to let people come to compersion in their own way and Mm. often I see when they feel the space to be jealous then actually the space to have compersion also arises it's interesting I mean, people describe jealousy and compersion as opposites. Um, but it's like you can still have both in the very same instance. Totally. You know, I can still be happy that, oh, I'm happy you're going to have that experience with so-and-so. And I'm also really hurt or, or jealous that that's an experience I've been asking for and you never initiated it with me. You know, it can yeah. be both.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: So I think, you know, to practice it, um, you know, just pausing. I mean, I think usually first tending to hurt feelings or jealous feelings is what needs to happen there. Um, but then, you know, thinking of your partner and what you love about them and wanting them to have the freedom to have good experiences with other people.
1: Mm. Yeah. Wow. So powerful. I think that's such an important piece of like, it's okay to feel hurt and in fact it's gonna be fucking scary if you you're gonna to feel this. hurt at some point yeah yeah <laughs> yeah like it just is you know and so I think that's such a beautiful and important point and mm-hmm. I think we can surprise ourselves with the amount of at least I've surprised myself with the level of compersion that I've been able to experience I always saw myself as a very possessive jealous mm-hmm. person um yeah but I don't think I'd been given the A, the models in in my like culture and society growing up. I didn't even know what compersion was. I didn't know that was allowed. And when I look back on experiences, I actually remember, and I don't know why I'm gonna share this, but here we go. Um, (laughs) I remember like making love to one of my early boyfriends and wanting him to tell me about his experiences with other women and like, Mm -hmm. tell me, tell me, tell me. And him being really, weirded out by that I <laughs> being like, why, yeah. do, why do you want this? And I remember I shut that down, I never did that again. But if mm-hmm. I look back, I'm like, oh no, there were clues along the way. There was also jealousy and possessiveness, but there was also um, this other thing, this other muscle that didn't have an opportunity to be flexed. So for anyone listening, if you think, oh my God, I could never experience that compersion, maybe not, but maybe you can, because I definitely didn't think it was possible.
0: Yeah, sometimes a stepping stone to compersion is thinking of the things you don't actually totally enjoy doing for your partner, and then they're getting that met by somebody else. You're like, oh yes, please, <laughs> <laughs> you know. And it can be a little stepping stone of just like, oh, I'm so glad they're giving that to you. You know, <laughs> thank God, <laughs> right? That's it's off my plate, right? Yeah. <laughs>
1: yes, that is amazing. Uh, I love that. Can we? um Can we speak to, this is kind of a weird left turn, but let's go there. If let's say you have a lover or a partner, but, and your quality of connection with them is quite secure and healthy, but Mm -mm. their relationship, whether it's with their primary or with another lover is either toxic or even abusive. Yeah. So there's kind of two lines here that I think about. One is, love can be a healing force especially a healthy connection can actually be really helpful and healing and yet on the other side could you be enabling that person to stay in a bad situation because you're giving them the healthy love and emotional kind of connection that they're not getting there like which is it how do we walk that line what's your perspective Mm. on that
0: yeah i mean there's a lot here and of course it always depends but this is a great sort of question um And I've seen it go in all directions, you know, I've seen, and even personally, right, dated someone who's like, oh, you're, this is a really unhealthy dynamic. And to the, with that other person, you know, their other partner, and it's like, to what degree is it impacting me and this partner and our relationship really makes a difference? You know, sometimes when it's like, oh, okay, this really like our relationship can't be free of this. Um, And it's causing drama and it's causing stress. Then sometimes we do have to say this isn't working, you know, and either please, you know, get support for you in that other relationship and heal what needs to be healed there, address what needs to be addressed, or I need to walk away. You know, what I usually, I haven't seen so much what you're saying where sort of the healthy connection sort of allows someone to keep staying in an unhealthy connection with someone else. Usually they realize, "Uh uh-oh you know, we either have to really, you know, go into a boot camp together, right? Um, Or they wind up letting go of the relationship. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Because usually if they start speaking up, you know, either the other person's on board to change things or they're not.
1: Yeah. That's kind of the key, right? A willingness to grow. If you have that, you Mm -hmm.
0: can. I don't know, it feels like you can make it through almost anything, but if you don't have that, then it's very hard. Yeah. And I think that's why we do see a lot of you know, connections that open up um, don't always last. And it's not because of polyamory itself, you know, but it's often because of sort of what you're saying, like, ooh, there was a lot that we weren't addressing, we weren't really seeing, you know, and and now there is sort of other healthy connections that show me that there's different, there's a different Mm -hmm. way to experience love, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the fear, but
1: also the gift. It's like the fear is... I'm going to lose my partner, but the gift is if this isn't who I, a healthy connection and that's actually empowering me to be self-actualized, which is is my reason for being in relationship and we all get to choose mm-hmm. why we relate to others. But for me, ultimately, it's like, yes, yeah, safety, emotional bonds, and ultimately a safe space where we can both self-actualize and become who we're meant to be. And I think if we're not in in bonds that are actually supporting that, then – better to know, but some people that they don't want to know. So great, <laughs> right. we all yeah. get to choose. Um, exactly. I think for people listening, they're probably recognizing like, wow, that sounds really complex. And I know my husband and I definitely would always make the joke like, wow, like, yeah, that sounds interesting. But also we both run businesses and that sounds like a lot of work. And I don't know if we have time for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, it can be complex. How, how do we avoid over processing if you're in these situations
0: yeah and especially in the beginning or in non-monogamous transitions even down the road when there's like new partners entering the picture and you know there's phases where it does require more processing um But I, you know, people can get exhausted. You can really have processing fatigue if it's just like an open buffet, open bar, you know, we can talk about this anytime. So, I mean, I usually suggest to people have designated times in the week that you're checking in about these things so that you're not just processing them all the time, you know, and if you feel like you're processing and you're not getting anywhere, then use supports, So like the Multi-Amory podcast has the radar that people love really and benefit from get professional support, you know, read the Polysecure workbook, whatever it is. (laughs) Everyone listening, (laughs) required reading. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So speaking of complexity, um, what about having children and adding children into the mix? And how have you seen that work and what are the challenges there?
0: Yeah, I think. And if people have children and they're worried about it, look at um, Eli Chef's work. Um, you know, she's done longitudinal research on polyamorous families. And her basic takeaway is the kids are OK. Um, and some of them are actually doing better because they're in a situation where their parents have higher communication skills because they have to. <laughs> right. Mm. Um, because of the sort of paradigm of relationship they're in. But it really depends sort of how old your kids are. So I see kids that are introduced to it from the beginning or pretty young. They're usually okay with it, you know, and speak to them in age appropriate ways. Um, you know, usually about we can love more than one person and and this is a special person to me. And I've seen most kids are fine, you know, sometimes teenagers um, or you know, adult children, because they've already established their own beliefs, they might struggle with it Yeah. and might, you know, but okay, I don't want to know much about it and things like that. Um, personally, I tend to be a little bit more conservative when it comes to like introducing people, you know? Yeah. I think it's good to sort of wait till there's some kind of commitment or investment before we're expecting our children to sort of have an attachment with an adult in our life. Yeah. That makes total sense. Yes. So
1: what about in more hierarchical polyamory? Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I think that it's interesting, like from a gender perspective, because let's say men historically have had not to say women haven't had multiple children with multiple partners, that also happens, but it seems because women are often the default parent, just because, you know, some of the, and not necessarily not all women nurse, but if you are nursing and you are like birthing, then those are things yeah. that someone can't take off your plate for you. I guess my question is around have you ever seen it work or is it, is there a way for that to work? It's just the level of complexity seems interesting, but let's say you have, um, It would be easier, it seems, for a man in a polyamorous situation with a primary partner to have multiple children and to kind of work across that versus Mm -hmm. a woman to be able to have multiple children with multiple partners and work across that. Yeah. Have you seen that work? How do people come up with creative solutions for that? How does that work?
0: Yeah. I've seen a nice amount of situations where women having children um, have more than one partner. So they have maybe the biological parent and then, you know, other moms, other dads, other non-binary parents, you know, yep. that are involved. And that's a beautiful situation where there's just more support, you know. Yes. And there might be children that are half siblings or even step siblings um, in that kind of, you know, situation that are there too. Mm-hmm. Um I haven't seen too many situations. I know they exist. I mean, I've seen it more in monogamy where you have a man that has multiple children and living in different places, you know. Right. Um, Yeah, it's interesting. There's
1: almost a lot of things that happen and are feared in polyamory already happen in monogamy. We just kind of do it differently. Does that make sense and would you agree? (laughs)
0: Yeah, yeah. I think in polyamory there's can be Right. Caveat is it can be that there is more of this attitude or posture of like, well, let's do this together or let's support each other in this whole child raising experience, you know, whereas, you know, meeting someone who already has kids in a monogamous context is is kind of pretty common at this point, you know, and what it means to um have step parents and all of that but often you know sometimes you connect with your partner's ex that they're a co-parent and sometimes you don't right yeah 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 so, so it's
1: it's like same same but different
0: <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> it, it sounds so scary but when we think about it you're like oh wait oh, people are happening. already doing that yeah but you know yeah. but because we've grown up usually more in this monogamous context or your ex-wife or ex-husband is, you know, a bad person like those kind of narratives that exist, right? That it's competitive or um that can still exist in us, you know, that we're looking at the previous people that have existed before us with some kind of critical eye or or jealousy. Mm.
1: As a threat, I guess. And then the real, the question is are they really Exactly. So in your book, you talk about six challenges that you see in people shifting from, into, sorry, six challenges that you see from people shifting into consensual non-monogamy or like some kind of a different structure. Can you speak to those six challenges? Oh yeah, I
0: don't remember them off the top of my head.
1: Right? <laughs> Forget about so, that one. Then. <laughs> no, 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 <laughs> we to no. It's some challenges. Yeah, yeah. No,
0: it's great um, because my next book, Polly Wise, um, speaks to the rest of the challenges, right? Ooh. So um, the insecure, the challenge that happens with attachment um, is one of them, and Polly Secure was sort of all about that challenge, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the other ones are around the paradigm shift itself, right? We can underestimate what a big deal it is to live in a completely different paradigm of relationship, of family, of sex, of romance, right? So there can be this time it takes to adjust to being in a new paradigm. Yeah. Um, So that's one. It's a big one. Mm. Mm. Um, Challenges around codependency and differentiation and enmeshment, right? That many people (laughs) in the more monoromantic ideal were encouraged to really have a certain kind of loss of identity or couple identity or fusion of self with the relationship they're in. And you open up and realize, oh, there's all these sort of enmeshed or codependent patterns playing out here that make having other people in our life really challenging. Yeah. So you have to start to like reestablish yourself as an individual that's in relationship with others and interdependence versus sort of a codependence. That's a big one. Mm. Um, the one we already named that, you know, the cracks get exposed. So all of the issues that were in a relationship before, whether that was even polyamorous, because um, in my next book, it's not just about couples opening up. It's really along the journey all the way, we go through these poly transitions, right? Like I said, you know, escalations, de-escalations in relationship, change in hierarchy, introducing new partners, Um all of those kind of things can expose the cracks in the foundation of the relationships we were in. Mm. Yeah. Um, another one would be um, the awakening of the self. So, which is a beautiful one. And sometimes it's really quite a liberation for people when they open up. Um, and sometimes it's really a painful, like dark night of the soul deconstruction of the self that they go through. And they don't always have the support or the resources or just the context, you know, for that kind of experience.
1: Yeah, and I think something that can be challenging is in that deconstruction of self, in that dark night of the soul, sometimes it might feel like you don't have many people you can share about it with because you're afraid that you'll be judged, you'll be um, projected on, you'll be... Um, You know, you'll lose essentially acceptance and love because we do live in such a predominantly monogamous culture and you don't – I know at least I've experienced, I've shared like little bits when I was opening up into my queerness and experimenting Mm -hmm. there and feeling – people's fear actually of like, well, what does this mean for me in my relationship? And like, don't say that around my husband because I don't want to have to have sex with women. And I'm like, wait, that's not-
0: That's yeah, not what I'm telling happening. you. <laughs> yeah.
1: happening. <laughs> yeah. And so there's like a lack of support, I think, in this really challenging time. Or if you're grieving, like if you're in a mm. primary partnership, but you're like going through a breakup or going through a difficult time with another partner, I think if people are in a more monogamous construct, there's like a there's a lack of understanding and I think that lack of understanding can create a lack of support or feeling isolated for people
0: absolutely because people are like well you know just go back to monogamy or oh well you have other partners so you shouldn't be as hurt by a breakup or a betrayal from a one other partner yeah there's really a lack of understanding and to no fault I I mean they just yeah (laughs) sorry go for it yeah I mean it makes sense you know
1: Mm. How do you navigate that if someone's listening and they're um, either wanting to open up, but they feel like they can't bring that to their partner or they are opening up and they're struggling, but they don't, other, they don't have anyone to share with, like, what, what would be your suggestion around that?
0: Yeah. So I suggest like making poly friends, not just people that you're looking to date, you know, other mm-hmm. people that you can connect with that are also non-monogamous you know queer kinky like whatever it is that you're sort of stepping into like make people make friends with people in that paradigm or in that identity helps yeah in your life you know who is the safest person or people that you can bring this to right mm. that you can share and and you can even give resources to hey can you read this article um and you know and talk about it with me Because sometimes we will have people in our life that absolutely like we say, I need you to learn about something um, on my behalf and they will, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes it is. We need to find a coach or a therapist that, you know, we have dedicated time that's just for us that we can bring all of the challenges to the table. Hmm. That's so essential. Both of
1: those things, I think, dedicated coach or therapist and having like a community of people. I mean, that's actually how I found your book. I asked mm-hmm. a friend of mine who is poly and queer, like, hey, if you could read anything, like what should, what should I be reading? Um, and your book was one of two. And I got onto it immediately and then shared it with lovers and everyone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> everyone read this. <laughs> everyone must read this. Um, it's been so helpful. But I also, um, one of them was also the Jealousy workbook with Kathy, Kathy yeah. Labriola, who we just had on as well. And oh, good. that was yeah, super, so good. super helpful to mm-hmm. like work through. Um, and one of the questions in that book, which was interesting speaking to your point, was around um, reflecting on the healthy models that you have um, for monogamous relationships and then the healthy models that you have or couples that you admire or polycules or, you know, whomever that you admire that is in a non-monogamous relationship and it was really interesting for my husband and I because we had to laugh. We we really struggled to find monogamous couples. And that's not because there aren't plenty of amazing monogamous couples. It's just that's not the community we're in. <laughs> we right. Were like, and then we had like a list of like like no space left to be writing and we're like, <laughs> oh well the writing was really on the wall here, wasn't it? But wait, <laughs> <Quite> literally.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's very helpful. Um Can we talk about casting someone as an attachment figure Mm -hmm. who isn't able to be or doesn't want to be? I think this is applicable whether you're consensually monogamous or monogamous, but this is like a really tricky one. And when I read this part of the book, I was like, oh my God, this
0: is what's happening to me right now. (laughs) Yeah, like we've all been there, even if it was when we were a teenager. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, yeah. So it's sort of, you know, In the name of consent, of like, oh, consenting and sort of even, you know, negotiating with people. Oh, do we want to be attachment-based partners? Because you don't have to be to be in relationship, you know. But if you want to be or you're expecting that kind of sort of involvement with someone where it's like, yes, I'm here to show up and care for your attachment needs and vice versa, Mm -hmm. Right. We need to be on the same page about that. (laughs) Mm. You know, and and in my book, I give questions because I don't want to assume that means the same thing even to everyone. Right. So really together, you know, whether it's, you know, two people or a multiple partner relationship, defining, oh, what does it mean to be a safe haven? What does it mean to be a secure base? Right. What does presence mean to me? What does attunement mean to me? How does that work? for each of us Mm. or all of us. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So then what happens though, is we have, you know, people that we meet and we fall in love with, or we connect with, you know, and we want them to be attachment partners, but they're not available for it. Mm. And so really having to, you know, usually in monogamy, you just then can't be in relationship. In non-monogamy, you might still be able to have some level of You know, relationship or connection, but just being clear of of what are we able to do and how can we show up for each other or not. Mm, I think it's so key to have that conversation because
1: that isn't a conversation I've ever heard presented as necessary, right? I don't hear anyone talking about sitting down and saying like, "Are we attachment figures or not?" And usually, we're doing this really crazy, unconscious push pull, like distance pursuer dance. And I think what can happen sometimes as well is that someone is Someone's words are incongruent with their behavior. And that yeah. can be very confusing. Like, how would you suggest addressing that if someone's really speaking in a way that would imply they want to be an attachment figure, but then their behavior is totally incongruent with that?
0: Yeah. I mean, you just have to be able to, you know, speak to it and call it out of like, oh, yeah, your words are great and the intentions you're sharing with me are wonderful, but your actions aren't following through with that. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that's common, you know, that relationship neglect or sort of, you know, people who aren't able to fully show up um, is pretty common in all relationships. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So think, just naming it. Yes.
1: And seeing usually that is related to that attachment injury that you talk a lot about in the book, you know, mm-hmm. anxious, avoidant, all of that yeah. stuff. So it all plays in.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But it is, it's tricky and can be painful to navigate when you want that the hard one that I see too is when both people want it, but they just don't have the time for it. Like the connection feels very much like attachment-based, but they already have other partners, commitments, children work, you know, and they just are like, damn it. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 It's like the beauty that there's even a possibility. And I think the beauty of what you shared that at least in a non-monogamous container, those people can have some place in each other's life. Yeah. there's no option to explore that at all. I
0: don't know. Yeah, there's a, there's a beauty in that. I see exactly. And people listening to have permission also to say, I don't want to have a partial or more disconnected or arm's length relationship or less frequent relationship because um, it's too painful if I actually want that person to be an attachment partner yeah yes
1: very true you you touched on safe haven and secure base can you talk about the distinction between those two things and like why they're so important
0: yeah so safe haven is just that right who are the people that I feel safe with um they are the haven to turn to to retreat to to let my guard down with you know that there is that sense of sharing, soothing, comfort, you know, availability, accessibility, all that good stuff. Yeah. Mm. That real, yeah, safety is key. Um, And defining for people too, like what creates and builds safety within a relationship? You know, what what makes someone the person that you can turn to or the people that you can turn to when you need to, right? Whether it's mm. for difficult stuff or the celebration moments, the happy stuff, you know, that's just as important as, oh, I'm excited and I want to share it, you know, and you see it in children, you know, they love sharing sort of their wins or, right, their successes or what they're excited about with their primary attachment figures. And then secure base is more of that, that sense of encouragement, like go do you, like I've got your back, you know, the cheerleading kind of energy or the the exploratory type of energy. And in a relationship, it could be, oh, the things like the adventures we take together, or even the way we challenge each other that is for our growth, or I'm supporting you to go have your growth with others and the world. And I'm here for you to come back to, to process it with it, you know, to Mm -hmm. talk about it with, yeah sounds like there's like a sense of continuity to that would that be fair (laughs) i think so absolutely yeah yeah Is it more
1: that they can like go and come back there's like this constancy is that
0: yeah yeah it's usually the more that the coming and going you know and developmentally in children we see first there needs to actually be a safe haven and then as a child becomes more you know physically and emotionally and cognitively autonomous they go and have their experience and come back and they need Mm -hmm. that check-in um Mm -hmm. but you know in non-monogamy we can sort of have that kind of relationship with different people
1: wow And does that shift? Can that secure base shift from one partner to another or that safe haven? And what's that process
0: like? Yeah, I've seen it shift, you know, and that can just be phases of the relationship itself or levels of availability that people have depending on what's going on in their life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, maybe certain things even around like shared projects or shared interests. Yeah, or just like your personality, you know, the things you do with some people and the things you do with others. No. Mm. Can
1: You touched on it when you were talking about the challenges of um, making shifts, structural mm-hmm. shifts in a relationship. Um, I'd love to speak to or have you speak to a little more around the kind of grief that can arise when we yeah. shift into... Particularly, I think from monogamy into polyamory, because there's so much indoctrination around like every romance film you've ever seen, every happy ending you've ever seen, the one and only that I'm supposed to be the one and only like it's like this grieving of a narrative and grieving of what the relationship was, even if both partners are like super psyched and excited to step into something new and that can be a bit confusing
0: I think um, can you it is yeah because you can say oh I want to do wow. this but why do I feel all this sadness and this grief and it is a letting go because if you were monogamous there was a whole monogamous future that you kind of were hooked into you know that you hung your coats on <laughs> right so it's it's letting go of what was right and it And not that you're actually fully letting go, but right, like, you know, putting down what was letting go of the future that you imagined. And there's things in monogamy that might have been great that you absolutely loved that are not going to be the same anymore. You know, so I think it's really important for people to allow that grief process along with, you know, moving forward into, you know, the new things that they're doing um but it it can be very difficult and confusing because you ha- you know grief is is not a one and done deal usually you know like and grief can come in surprising moments um so yeah it's really important to just allow the space for grief to be there
1: yeah how yeah. do you support your partners or how do you suggest supporting partners in moments when and i mean this is applicable to consensual non-monogamy or monogamy when in moments of your you're on a high you're excited yeah. you're up and your partner is down they're grieving yeah. they're in distress like how do we manage that creative
0: tension it's a tough one and the, usually the best thing is to just be able to tune in to the partner that's down and give the empathy that they need um, When we start to get into, well, you, oh, when we minimize it, oh, it's not that bad or it was just a date. We didn't have, you know, like all the ways we try to be like, don't feel what you're feeling, basically. That yeah. doesn't work. And that usually prolongs the feelings that your partner's having because now they're upset for a, a new reason, you know. Mm. So be careful of all the ways you kind of say, don't feel that, please, because I don't like that you're feeling it. <laughs> Um, Or you should be feeling different. Why aren't you more happy for me? You know, all of that is like, I see that really make it worse. Yeah. Um, That usually when we can just acknowledge like, oh yeah, I see you're in a moment and you're having grief or you wish things were simpler or it's hard that there's now more people in the picture. Like Mm. that goes a long way. Yes. Yes. And the key is that the person in grief should not be relying on that. One partner for all of their support, you know, and that's mm-hmm. yeah, yeah that we need to find some a transition exactly, exactly mm-hmm. finding support within ourselves and finding support through other people, not that one person, you know, because mm-hmm. that gets tricky. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Hmm. Empathy and acknowledgement—you can never go too heavy on that in
0: relationship.
1: I feel just I know it's go, go, one of those, try to go like, overboard. <laughs> right
0: it's just so simple and it's not doesn't mean it's easy to do when emotions are high and defenses are up and language gets extreme you know yeah 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 and I think
1: so much of us have so much attachment injury around our feelings and needs so you know when you add in this level of complexity it gets really interesting to be like wow Especially, I think, is it safe for me to want what I want and need what I need Mm -hmm. and express that? How would you, how do you navigate that? I think oftentimes, what, um, what I notice and what Kathy Labriola shared as well is that most broken agreements uh, happen because you made an agreement that you you couldn't actually agree to, yeah, and that comes from a place that you don't feel like you can ask for it. Actually, exactly. reflect that to me. She said, you know, do you actually not want that or do you just think you can't have it? And I was like, whoa. Whoa. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. That's a tricky one. What do you you feel on that?
0: I agree. I think most broken agreements um, are agreeing. Someone agreed to something that they didn't really want and they thought they needed to, to keep their partner quiet, happy, (laughs) right? (laughs) Less upset. Um, Or sometimes it's not until you get into things that you realize the agreement isn't the right fit. So there's a lot of retrospective learning in non-monogamy. And sometimes we don't have the, you know, confidence to go, oh, I'm feeling that this isn't working. Let me address it sooner than later until now it's actually a full-on broken agreement and, you know, a harm that's happened. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful yeah. to and I, make that
1: the the system is paused yeah. and readdressed.
0: Yeah, and I bring in like the first agreement needs to be um, we commit to courageous conversations because and and speaking up sooner than later because um, there's also agreements that we just. We break because we didn't know how to have the awkward conversation first. And yes, it would have been uncomfortable and awkward, but it actually wouldn't have been a rupture and now a hurt, right? Yes. Right? So it's just getting in the habit of of shifting that. Mm. Yeah. And I think oftentimes
1: there isn't the underlying relational safety to actually yeah. have those conversations, which is a fundamental issue, you know. And I think if that exactly. relational safety isn't there, it's going to be very hard.
0: Yeah. Is it actually safe, to be honest? And is it safe – do we have enough differentiation where I can have a different opinion and that doesn't create a whole blow-up? Mm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yes.
1: Can we speak a little bit to – um limerence new relationship energy and how do we navigate that without getting totally
0: destabilized yeah yeah uh limerence nre new relationship energy you know sort of the the love hormones the drugs of love hormones um they can really sweep us off our feet um and i think with experience people are able to navigate it better you know I mean, there is sort of parallels if people have taken certain substances or done medicine journeys, right? Like the first time you might be like, whoa, I can't really function on this. And then if you do it again, you're like, oh, I can navigate through this with, you know, differently. Um, So yeah, I think that it's, um, yeah, it's sort of trying to like feel the good feelings, but then also stay grounded at the same time, you know? And the key usually is, you know, enjoy the amazing feelings of limerence and your relationship energy, but make sure you're not neglecting your current responsibilities or relationships because of it. Yeah. Mm. That is one to navigate for sure. Well,
1: I feel like we'll have to have you back on again because it's just scratching the surface, but thank you so much for your time. Where can people find you if they're more interested? Yeah. They can just go to my
0: website. Yeah. Jessicafern.com and if you sign up for my website, you'll get sort of notifications if there's any events coming up or my new book coming out, things like that.
1: Amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time today. and Thank more you, soon, Angel.
0: Hope. All right. Bye.
1: That's it for today, Awakened One. And just a quick thank you from me. Thank you for gifting us with your most precious resource, your time and attention so that we can make this world a more awakened place. And if we're not friends on Instagram yet, then we absolutely should be. So come on over and say hello
0: at Angelica Alana and I'll see you there and see you next week.